You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, so my guest today is a colleague and an interventional cardiologist. And although we have not met in person, and I hope we, we change that and we get to meet in person at one of the meetings, now that meetings have started again, fingers crossed. Um, I got to know her uh, through social media, so through Twitter, um, and through her recent involvement in in Sky um, a Fellows course, which is which is a great discourse, obviously for you know not only fellows in training but also practicing interventional cardiologists, because you know as all of us know, our field in interventional cardiology, I would say cardiology and medicine in general is a dynamic evolving field and it's important to stay up to date with the latest and the greatest um and i i requested her to actually come on the show and and have a conversation and, and she she gracefully agreed um so my guest is dr nadia sutton dr nadia sutton is an assistant professor of medicine and an interventional cardiologist at university of michigan and she's here to talk to us today about not only her involvement with Sky Fellows course, but, you know, in general about navigating life's challenges whilst keeping an eye on, on your goals and, and your mission and your vision. So with that introduction, Nadia, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you today. Um, so yeah, so we're going to begin, um, I think, the show by uh, by me requesting you to, to to tell our listeners more about your career and your paths to becoming an interventional cardiologist. You are in that uh, in that small percentage of women who are in interventional cardiology, and you know I really feel honored and and proud to just know you know know colleagues like yourself because you've you've sort of shattered that glass ceiling as as they call it as cliched as as it may sound but it and it's, it's sort of unfortunate i really hope more women join uh, interventional cardiology but why don't you um why don't you tell us more about you know your paths to interventional cardiology absolutely thank you so much and i um i'm just delighted to join you today and tell you a little bit about you know my story and i hope that um you know some of the of the lessons that i've learned along the way will be helpful to others so just um, a bit of background, I grew up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, um, come from a family where my, um, my dad is from the Middle East, he's from Bahrain, and my mom is um, from Minnesota. And so, you know, I sort of grew up in a mixed cultural household and um, ended up going to Loyola for undergrad, uh, pre-med track, and studied biology, and then um, ended up subsequently going to Boston University to do a master's in public health with the intention eventually of going to medical school. And while I was at Boston University, I had a, a very fortunate um, sort of thing happen, which was that I was looking for a full-time research position during the day so I could support myself while I was doing my master's um, degree in the evening. And I landed a job working for Joe Lascalzo, who is now um, the chief of medicine at the Brigham Hospital and um, had a really wonderful experience working in the lab. Um, you know, he's a physician scientist, and I think that's kind of what sort of inspired me along that path. And um, one of the very, very early people who I inter interacted with 
was Jane Leopold, um, who is an interventional cardiologist and a physician scientist and is um, practicing at the Brigham right now. And in fact, I just ran into Jane um, at CRT a couple of weeks ago, and we were just marveling about the fact that we actually met. Um, it's hard, unbelievable, but 20 years ago, I was like a recent um, <laughs> graduate from undergrad, and uh, and it was really you know inspiring um, to see her at that time. So I ended up going then to medical school um, back at Loyola, and then met my husband in medical school. And he was from Michigan, so that's how we ended up back in Michigan after medical school. And I did all of my postgraduate training at the University of Michigan, um, continued on the research path. I did um, a couple of years of dedicated research time in the midst of my fellowship, um, had a couple of kids along the way, and um, was fortunate to be invited to stay on as faculty after I finished my fellowship. Um, and so that's kind of where I am today. Yeah, that's that's awesome and, and heartening to hear your your path and and your story, and you've mentioned, you know, a couple of really influential names, you know, Joel Oscalzo, obviously, physician, scientist extraordinaire, former editor-in-chief of Circulation, um, and, and Jane Leopold, who's on faculty at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and, and really, I mean, you, you trained at um, a premier academic institution, that is the University of Michigan. Um, so tell us, tell us about as a as a woman uh being in interventional cardiology or you know just like to back up a little bit and say cardiology and then thinking of family planning how did how did you have those conversations with yourself how did you have those conversations with your husband um and maybe uh if you could also answer what I mean, you, you sort of had your early interactions with with Joel Oskalza and Jane Leopold. So perhaps cardiology came intuitively or naturally to you while you were in medicine. But maybe if you could also share with us what led you to become a cardiologist when pursuing medicine. Yeah, that, those are all great questions. So um, initially, I was I was thinking about actually going into infectious diseases because I thought that was a really fascinating field. And that's actually what my um, sort of concentration was when I was doing my master's in public health was in international health. And I actually did a internship in Zambia after I finished my master's in public health before I went um, to medical school. But um, so I think I, I, I really enjoyed my experience doing cardiology research um, before I went to medical school, but I was sort of still thinking along the lines of infectious disease um, as a specialty. And, you know, I think it was sort of during medical school and um, at the beginning of my residency that I really started to enjoy my cardiology rotations. And so I sought out my um, my mentor, um, David Pinsky. He's my, re my research mentor, who also happens to be my division chief, like very early on in my residency to, to see if I could continue doing um, research, but just in cardiology. And I, I really liked the physiology I liked um, the fact that there was a lot of um, research going on in the area. There seemed like there was more data, perhaps. Um, it seemed like we had more answers for questions. Sorry, we, we had more answers um, for patients, although like in in um, in hindsight, I, I think that was maybe a little bit um, short-sighted of me because I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions in cardiology. Um, and, you know, I just I th thought it was a really interesting field. I, I liked taking care of patients who I felt like 
um, really needed the help. Um, and I felt like I was really making an impact. So, I mean, I think those are all the reasons I, I gravitated towards cardiology. And then I think I remember I did my first um, interventional cardiology rotations and I, I thought it was just so wonderful. I mean, I thought it was really cool that we could um, make an impact by sort of mechanical means and that you could think on your feet and you could think quickly. And I, um, I thought very highly of my colleagues or my, well, they're now my colleagues, but at the time they were my faculty and I thought they were really smart people. And I liked um, the way that they thought and they, you know, they kind of worked through problems quickly. So, you know, that's kind of how I ended up, um, uh, I guess, being recruited into the interventional cardiology field is, you know, I really liked it. And um, somewhat to my surprise, I had some technical ability. So that's, that's how that sort of um, occurred. <laughs> and I think I also, at the very beginning, I, I told the interventional faculty that, you know, it was my intention to, you know, continue along with science. And I didn't think, you know, if those two weren't compatible, that I didn't think I could do interventional cardiology. And uh, fortunately for me, I was assured that they thought that would be still you know, feasible to be able to do both of those um, paths simultaneously. So I was in an institution that would support that model. There's not that many places that can do that. So that's, I guess, the first part of your question. And then the other part with this question about family planning, I'd like to say it was um, <laughs> thought out, but um, I think it just was sort of a um, uh, spontaneous thing that happened. And so I had my first daughter when I was an intern. Um, and so, you know, I took call and all those kinds of things and that was tough, but, um, she came along and then I had my second daughter when I was doing like the research part of my fellowship, the T32 training grant, um, which was a little bit easier because I didn't have to take call, um, immediately. And it was tough, especially during the interventional years. Cause I had like two small kids. Um, and my husband is a physician too. So, um, you know, fortunately for me, he was able to kind of um, manage um, while I was working the long fellowship hours. But it's not to say that it wasn't tough. But at the same time, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily something that should be put off if somebody, you know, wants to have a family because it doesn't ever get easier. There's always going to be busy. And I, you know, I think we can talk about that for a long time. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think you should just have you know, if you're going to have a family, you can have it whenever you feel like it, because I don't think there's any right time or good time. It just depends on the person. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's a personal decision. And I think more, more important, um, at least that's how I, I think about it. I think it's more important for that person to be, to, to feel ready to be a parent more than anything else. I think, uh, you know, because, you know, like you're, rightly said i think career you'll have different challenges at different stages in your career and you know i think it just it gets busier or at least it seems uh, that it it may get busier because i think your responsibility keeps increasing as you uh, navigate through early and mid career or you know at least that's how i felt through my career absolutely and i mean i think the other thing is that like i know i had my kids when i was part of a training program and a training program with having like, you know, sometimes 40 residents or 30 residents, it's just actually better, honestly, equipped to be able to, you know, um, have the manpower or woman power to, to cover if somebody needs to be off for a few months versus like if you're in a, in a smaller 
group of five or six people, it actually is maybe a little bit more. So I, I think that just from a practical standpoint, it's, it's actually, uh, you should just do it whenever it seems like it's the right time for you, because I don't think it gets any easier as time goes by for the others. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, um, you know, we, we had children when my, the first one was when my wife was an intern and, and then the second one was when she was starting ophthalmology. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's, again, I think it's, you, you have to feel that you're ready uh, to be a parent more than anything else. You know, that's how at least, you know, I, I felt about it when, when we planned for, for our kids. Um, but, you know, you mentioned about the physician scientist pathway, and you also mentioned about uh, the institutional support for you to have a career um, as a physician scientist. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, personally for me, it's, it's, it's important. That's how I've always strived to exist as a physician, you know, as, you know, to exist as a physician investigator, because the, um, the science component is, is an important one for me, at least for my, my identity. Um, when you were having these conversations with your faculty or with your mentors, what exactly did you ask them? You know, and, and this is for, you know, residents or fellows in training who are, who are tuned in and listening. How do you approach your, your mentors or your senior faculty with a question like this? That is a great question. And I think this is something that isn't talked about very much, um, just because there's not that many people who go along the physician scientist pathway, particularly in cardiology. I mean, I think it's a little bit, um, it's good to be realistic, because, um, I mean, cardiology is a specialty, which is fairly, fairly lucrative um, in general. If you are planning to go down a physician scientist pathway, um, I think it, de- it depends on like sort of what your what your goal is. So um, like I'm on the tenure track right now. And when you're on the tenure track, um, there is a different set of uh, goals for advancement within the academic ladder. Um, there's a different salary structure. There um, are different expectations just in general. And so that's something that I've kind of had to learn along the way because there are uh, actually the moment I'm the only, I think I'm the only uh, tenure track interventional cardiologist um, at my institution. There might be one other, but um, there's not that many that go that route. And and there is actually the the salary structure in particular, it's, it's different. And that's almost at any academic institution. So, um, you know, that's something to be aware of. Um, and it's something to have a frank conversation with your division chief about, but the advantage is that you get, um, institutional resources for developing programs or, you know, research programs or, um, you know, depending on what your goals are, that they'll, they'll, you know, foot part of the bill for that. And so, you know, I know I've talked to some, um, colleagues lately who are at other institutions. And we've kind of talked about, you know, these ideas about research programs. And, you know, one of the things I hear from some people is that, you know, that they don't have that institutional support to be able to achieve the goals, you know, that they feel like they would like to achieve or that they're capable of achieving. So that's, I guess, you know, it's a trade-off. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I didn't have that many people to ask questions of because there weren't very many people that I knew that were tenure track in interventional cardiology. So I, I kind of um, learned a lot on my own about it. But um, I mean, I guess what I can say is, you know, I think we, we talked about, you know, possibly talking a little bit about goal setting. It's just sort of understanding, like, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And one of the big goals that I have which may sound kind of lofty though, is like, I would like to make, you know, some kind of an impact scientifically. Um, and in order to do, to do that, I mean, you need to have resources. Um, and so that, you know, that was, a, a, a th- something I had to talk to my division chief about when I was, um, entertaining the possibility of staying on as a faculty member. And, um, you know, fortunately the institution was you know willing to support me with that, uh, goal in mind and, um, and have, and have continued to support me with that. But, you know, those are sometimes they're kind of frank conversations that you have to have. And the other thing is, sorry, I'm kind of rambling on here, but um, <laughs> you kind of have to know what your goals are. So in order in order to, to sit down and have a conversation with somebody else and say, you know, this is what I'm trying to achieve. You know, can you help me? You kind of have to outline in your mind, like what your goals are and to be able to have that conversation. Yes. No, um, I'm going to. Uh... I'm going to delve a little bit more into uh, your pathway because that's, you know, like my, my eyes lit up when, when I heard tenure track and, and interventional cardiology, because th- those two are, they don't go together for the most, for the vast majority of interventionists that I've known or I know. So congratulations on that. But, you know, something important that you mentioned um, is setting up goals and, you know, having a vision. And that's something that I, will credit my now chairman, Dr. Subha Raman, who, when at the time she was recruiting me to come to IU, asked me to pen down a vision statement, um, which, you know, I, I sort of wrote a draft and sent it to a couple of colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic to, to take a look uh, before I sent it back to her. But that vision statement, um, you know, included what I wanted to achieve clinically, what I wanted to achieve academically, and and what I wanted to what, what where I I saw myself in maybe five to ten years as a family person. So I, it had three components to it, um, and I, I couldn't agree with you more that like even for even for me, you know, that exercise of putting my thoughts to paper um, helped me crystallize what exactly I wanted, um, you know, clinically, academically, and, and from a family perspective. Um, but getting back to tenure track, actually, I think it's, it's a great opportunity for, for me as well as for the listeners to sort of hear from you. What exactly does it mean to be on tenure track and, what are some of the components which are different than someone who is also a faculty member, but on a non-tenure track or so on a clinical track? Well, those are great questions. And I feel like I'm still like growing to understand what some of these differences are. And ultimately at um, each institution, it should be published um, somewhere. There's usually a document, um, you know, in the faculty development office that may sort of outline at that specific institution, you know, what are the criteria or the range and criteria that are expected for somebody to be able to go up for a promotion. The other thing is um, I kind of came to 
get to know our dean for faculty affairs. Um, and it, sometimes, you know, you can get that information from your like immediate division chief, but sometimes it, it is also helpful to get it from somebody from like a departmental level or even uh, higher um, to just kind of get a sense for like the lay of the land, because like within a department, you know, divisions should be roughly equal in terms of what they're asking from their faculty members. And it, and it may vary from division to, to division. So kind of having the information at hand so you kind of know like is what is being asked of you similar to what is being asked in somebody, you know, from hematology, for example, that um, those are that's important knowledge for you to have. Um, but, you know, in terms of like my path, I mean, um, you know, I'm at the University of Michigan right now, and it, it is uh, fairly cl clearly outlined that, you know, when you're on the tenure track, it's like a up or out situation. So like if you don't sort of um, reach the associate professor, you know, potentially with tenure level by a certain time point, like you have a clock, then you either have to, you know, potentially, you know, shift over to a different track. Um, or, you know, you may end up leaving academics altogether, potentially. So it is a little bit of pressure. Um, and then, you know, because of that, when I was first starting, and because one of the uh, criteria for sort of moving on to the associate professor level is to have, you know, sufficient, um, you know, research grant funding and publications, that um, I was initially um, assigned a, a clinical they called me a clinical lecturer at the very beginning for the first couple of years. And they didn't want to put me as an, an assistant professor on the tenure track quite yet until I had um, uh, external research funding. And so it was a little bit awkward for the first couple of years. People would be like, what's a lecturer? What does that, what does that do? Or do you just lecture? <laughs> and here I am like a faculty member in interventional cardiology. But, um, you know, I'm not really one to care that much about titles. So I wasn't too bothered by it, but it was a little bit confusing for others. Um, so, you know, I spent the first couple of years with that position. And then, um, you know, once I had my external NIH funding from the National Institute on Aging, then I uh, became an assistant professor. And, um, you know, and then at this point, my goal is to um, obtain, you know, additional research funding and get sufficient publications and national recognition as, as part of the criteria, believe it or not, um, to be promoted to the associate professor uh, level. And, and apparently, and this is what I'm sort of learning, is that um, the distinction of, of receiving tenure um, is actually a separate designation from being promoted to associate professor. Um, so those two don't necessarily have to go together, but they often do. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it, though, is um, this idea of being nationally recognized for your, you know, area of expertise. Um, and so that's something that I kind of had to grapple with a little bit because it seems a little bit archaic to me. Um, and um, the the idea that you're being sort of um, externally judged on things that I think sometimes like aren't important uh, so you do, there is this idea, you, you kind of have to buy into it um, to some degree, um, even if it's, you know, in some ways distasteful. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of, that's kind of what I've learned in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, because, um, no, this is, this is good information. This is important information for those who are listening, because when I was transitioning um, institutions and 
um, at the clinic, I was, so I, from case to the clinic, I was assistant professor. And then when I applied for promotion, uh, the, first off the, the, the cycle is so long, like, and this is, I'm talking based on my, my own experience going through the cycle once. <clears throat> and that was like, I applied January, 2019 to be associate professor. And, and then it just goes through several committees. And by the time you actually get promoted is like a year and a half later um, when, you know, you sort of, you, you know, all your letters have accrued and it's gone through different cycles and, and then it sort of goes through different committees for approval and then it finally gets approved. So, you know, that was educational for me just as an experience, but it's, it's different. Uh, so, so when I was talking to Dr. Raman about, you know, tenure track versus, you know, non-tenure track, you know, she said that tenure track would not be feasible, you know, for me, because I, I do not have extramural funding. So to your point of getting external funding, and I, I did not know that if, if, if that is the sole arbiter or if, if that is the sole discriminant factor for tenure versus non-tenure track. And uh, some, of, some of what I've garnered from your explanation is that that probably is a key element. I believe so. Um, although, you know, <laughs> I'm still trying to understand some of the reasons why. I mean, I do know that and and you probably are aware of this as well that um you know when it comes to ranking of institutions the um NIH funding is heavily weighted um and so i do know that that is important to institutions um you know it's interesting though because it's almost like you have to have a parallel set of goals like you have your own goals for what you would like to achieve and then there's the institution's goals for what they expect you to achieve and so, um, you know, trying to navigate between those is in itself a different challenge. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you, which actually is a great segue for uh, for the topic of discussion of, of the podcast. And that is, um, you know, setting goals and, and, and mission, if, if you may, because I, I like to use the word mission because that, that's how that's how I think about it. I think that goals are short term and missions are for life. Your goals may change based on how quickly or how slowly you achieve them. But as long as the mission stays, then the mission is for life. Um, and then you get thrown upon, you know, these challenges, these waves that life comes in and throws different challenges at you all the time. As long as you have a, a vision and a mission, uh, you will somehow learn how to navigate through these challenges, right? Um, you know, while still keeping um, a, sh uh, a, a narrow focus on your mission. So, talk to us a little bit more about that mindset. How do you how do you develop and inculcate that mindset? And and it it does not come nat. I mean, obviously, it didn't come naturally to me. It's sort of it's like um, you know, like how you work out. In the gym, it's it's just like working out your mind constantly to train it to think like to think in that fashion. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, you could have taken the words right out of my mouth. I think that um, and something that you said just before we were starting our podcast um, really resonates with me, which is you know you were you were talking about the fact that you find a lot of meaning um, in what you do with these podcasts and these discussions, and I think that's like 
probably far and away the most important thing is that like whatever your goals are, you know, they should be something that brings, you know, meaning to you, um, that there's, you know, something in there that you, you find that you're sort of giving back or, or is a positive, um, thing. And, um, I mean, cause ultimately, you know, <laughs> that, that is what's important in life. And so I think when we set our goals, um, and, and I, and I have to say like, this isn't, this isn't something that necessarily, um, came to me like one day, this is, has been sort of an evolution. And, you know, many people have told me along the way to set goals, you know, as you know, you said that your division chief asked you to do, which is um, very wise. And, and, you know, many people had told me to set goals, but I didn't really think about it um, from the perspective that like, it's uh, me sort of moving towards the goal. Um, it, it, it seemed like somebody was like um, asking me to just like uh, do an exercise, you know? And, and so the kind of the further along I've come, I've realized that you have to have those goals because um, there will be challenges and it's um, without having a goal in mind, it's very easy to get waylaid or distracted by the, you know, minor and um, relatively insignificant things that come up from day to day and, and to really just keep a positive attitude. You know, we work in a very stressful field. Um, we have very sick patients, you know, sometimes the staff is, um, you know, feeling stressed and, um, you know, may take it out in ways that is, you know, um, you know, just demonstrating that they're under stress or, you know, our colleagues may be cranky. Um, there may be institutional, you know, things that come up that are, um, you know, we, we feel like aren't fair, you know, there's various things and this happens everywhere, um, you know, from talking to many people. But, you know, having your eye on your goal will help you to navigate those things and not let them bother you. Um, you know, just you kind of know, you know, I'm not going to let this, you know, minor thing, you know, get in the way and just, you know, kind of filling your mind with like, you know, positive <laughs> messages that like you can you can get to that goal. Um, you know, I think that like you just said, you know, it's about like exercising your mind in a way that's positive. Um, you know, when, when somebody says I'm going to lift, you know, 500 pounds, you know, they, they go to the gym and they make, you know, headway every day towards, you know, getting to that goal. Um, and in the same way, you know, there might be minor injuries or there may be, you know, small things that happen, but, um, if you can kind of keep your mind, um, set on achieving, you know, whatever your goals are and, 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 you know, coming to the um, realization of what your goals are, that's a process in itself. Um, and sometimes that takes um, a lot of courage to, ad, you know, sometimes even admit to others what your goals are. You know, they you may think they sound silly or you may think they're unachievable, um, but that's just, you know, our minds playing tricks on us. There's, you know, anything you want to achieve, you can achieve. It's just a matter of setting your mind to it. Yeah, no, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I think the so this is how this is how I think of it, right? And I I, I completely agree with you that we, we work in a very stressful field and it's a stressful environment. We're taking care of very sick patients. Uh, they're really vulnerable when, when they see us, uh, particularly in interventional cardiology, you know, whether it's in the throes of cardiogenic shock or acute MI, uh, you know, or um, a failing valve, um, what have you. Um, I, I sort of have, 
have started uh, following um, the, the Stoic philosophy of life. Um, and, you know, obviously this is based on, you know, challenges I've faced in my own life over the last, I would say, three to four years. Um, and that is um, what, I, what I've learned is called dichotomy of control. And that is I'm only going to stress and worry about what I can control. And, you know, what I can control is how I react to external stimulation. And, and what I can control is, is how my next step is going to be in response to that external stimulation. I cannot control what the external stimuli are or are going to be. I cannot control the circumstances that I'm going to be surrounded with. And I, I can't control people's opinions of me. Um, but what I can control is, is my reaction or my response to each of these, these stimuli. And as easy as it is to say it, um, I, you know, through own experience, I can tell you it's, it's, it's extremely hard uh, to practice because, you know, there are occasions where you may get frustrated and you get angered and um, you want to express your emotion uh, in X, Y, or Z fashion. But I, I sort of ask myself, um, the, you know, the following three questions, you know, is it whatever the action is uh, in response to that stimulus or whatever my words are going to be in response to that stimulus, I ask myself, is it kind? Is it honest? And is it necessary? And if, you know, that, that's like, that's like my, that's become my test. Is it kind? Is it honest? Is it necessary? And if the answer to any of that is no, I usually stop. Um, uh, and uh, I, it's taken me a while to get there. It's uh, it, it, this was not my, this was not how, how I was born or this was not my status quo, but this is how I am slowly becoming. Uh, and in doing so, what I've realized is I've, I've got across a lot of unnecessary emotion in my life. Um, and I've, I've become more silent and I've, I've become more relaxed with myself and, you know, when, when that happens, you sort of try to get to the um, goal and, and to the mission with more clarity. That, that has been my experience. I don't know. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I thought I'll, it, what you said resonated so much with me that I thought I'll share my sort of mantra with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's fantastic advice for anybody who's listening. And I mean, it's definitely easier said than done to have uh, control over your reactions. But um, I think that is like so critical um, to, to be able to stop and sort of take stock of a situation and not immediately react and think about like, what is your goal and um, you know, how you react sometimes um, is what can um, differentiate if you do or do not <laughs> reach your immediate goal. You know, so I think that, um, you know, I think that that is fantastic advice and, and I couldn't agree more. Oh, no, thank you. So, um, so can you describe, and I, I don't know if you can, but maybe sort of give, give us an anecdote um, on, on some of the, some of the, and, and you, you may or may not be in a position to, to talk to us uh, vividly about that. And that's totally fine. I get it. But, you know, just to sort of give us an anecdote or an example of, 
some of the situations that you may have navigated while keeping your goals intact, not, not setting a compromise on your goals. Uh, and then we're going to maybe talk about, you know, what's upcoming for you with Scott. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can give like, this is actually a fairly concrete example, which is that, you know, when I was first applying for my grant, so I first applied uh, for a K08. Um, a K is a NIH training grant, which um, usually institutions like to see that as sort of a predecessor to our level funding from the NIH. So I applied for a K08 from NHLBI, which is the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. Um, which is the typical institute that individuals usually like, apply for their cardiology um, related K awards from. And so I applied and um, they didn't discuss my grant. And, you know, usually with these NIH grants, it takes like six months to get your feedback. So similar to the tenure and <laughs> promotion process. So I didn't, you know, get discussed at all, um, which is like not um, ideal. Like I thought I would at least have had my grant discussed by the study section. So then I reapplied and it again did not get discussed. So I called the program officer and she basically told me that like she thought my proposal was too risky and, um, you know, that, that, that maybe nothing would come of it. And so, um, you know, she advised that I essentially scrap the grant and, you know, go in with a completely new grant. So in the meantime, um, one of the things, I mean, I, this was my goal was to, you know, um, to be a physician scientist. So I really needed to get this K award. So I, you know, kept talking to individuals and trying to get advice from different people. And that's like a big, you know, that's a big piece of advice in itself. It just talked to lots of people when you're trying to, um, you know, figure out, you know, the way to get to your goal. Um, and so I ended up talking to um, the division chief for geriatrics and palliative medicine, because my research was aging related and he suggested I apply for a K award from the National Institute on Aging rather than NHLBI. So I um, applied to that one um, instead. So this is my you know third go around. And in the meantime, I had also been applying for AHA career development awards. So um, I applied to that one and then I got like a decent score, but not still fundable. So then I put in a fourth uh, K award application um, and of course, now a couple of years has gone by <laughs> of uh, stressful grant writing submissions. And um, and finally, that got funded. And actually, it's a great award because it's it's actually more funding than a typical K award and comes with a um, leadership development component to it and uh, a conference that's dedicated to individuals who are studying aging um, biology. And so... I was actually very grateful that in a way that I did not get that KO8 funded to begin with, because this is actually much better. And um, at the same time, my AHA award was funded um, after multiple rounds as well. And it was like in the like less than first percentiles, meaning got a, like a really good score. So I thought that that process taught me a lot of grant writing skills because I felt like um you know, for one reason or another, I, I just, I wasn't very good at grant writing to start off with. It's, it's a little different from writing a manuscript. That's the other thing I've sort of learned along the way. Um, but I felt like I got stronger in the process and more independent with each go around. And at the end of the day, um, I learned a lot of skills, um, in the process of failing initially. <laughs> so, you know, there's, you know, there's been other things that have come up, but, um, I think that to me is like a very concrete example of persistence, 
um, and sort of that stick to itness um, that help people reach goals. The other thing I would just mention, um, which we haven't really talked about, is setting goals that like you might think are crazy, but like, you know, if you've got a goal, go for it. Like, even if it might sound like it's bananas to the next person, um, you know, there the sky is the limit. I think that a lot of times we end up boxing ourselves in with these ideas that people have told us like that something isn't achievable or nobody's been able to do it before, but that doesn't mean that like you can't do it. Um, you know, I've had, I had lots of people tell me along the way that it's impossible to be a physician scientist and an interventional cardiologist. And, um, that's just not true. I mean, it might be hard for a lot of people, but like I had a lot of basic science background and, um, you know, I think it's very, very achievable. It's just, it's hard but it's not impossible. Yeah, I know that that's, that's terrific. And so, you know, two themes which are extremely important in, in the concrete example that you shared, um, which I think, again, go back to the philosophy, the, the stoic philosophy or, you know, the spiritual philosophy. One is that it's never a rejection, it's a redirection. Um, so kind of think of rejections as redirecting your path to something higher or something you have never thought you know like for example you getting more more funding than you thought you would ever get for a ko8 and you also getting a simultaneous aha award uh to sort of um you you know supplement what you got from from the nih nhlb ipod so that was just you know it, it was redirection it was not rejection and then um you know success success is just that's that's how i think of success nowadays you know based on my own experiences and that is just moving from one failure to the next with the same enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing is that like, you know, you might um, try one, one path and it might not work, but like that you, it could just be a detour. Like maybe the time wasn't then for this thing, but maybe the time is in a year or two from now and you can always come back to it. And I mean, um, you know, you had mentioned that you, I think you said that you changed institutions at one point. And so that's, I mean, I think that's an interesting question, especially for people, you know, um, because I know like Eric, I've been at the University of Michigan since I started and I think it's a great institution. But I remember Eric Bates um, told me when I was taking my first job, he's like, this is not um, a decision that like commits you to this position for the rest of your life. Like, so don't make it bigger than it is. That was, that was his advice to me. Um, and, and I think that ultimately sometimes people do have to, you know, change institutions and, um, you know, I don't know what your experience has been with that, but, you know, sometimes like if you feel like you're, you, you can't reach your goals at your specific institution, but it might happen somewhere else. You know, I think that sometimes, sometimes that happens. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think it's, um, again, you, you know, just coming back to the theme of this podcast and that is if your goals and your mission is is clear then how you get there um may be challenging and may come with um x y and z detours um and i i think the the training exercise at least for me has been to, to train the mind to keep thinking that this is um 
you know, uh, this is just a, a detour in the in the right direction, um, and and that's how that's how that's how I've processed it. You know, that's that's how I think about it, and I I agree with you more. I, I think it's just setting your your goals and your mission. Um, like that should be put on paper, and that should be clear. The other thing that I think is pretty important is just to kind of like have continual positive reinforcement, um, you know, because I think that, like I said, you know, we, and we talked about the fact that we do work in, you know, stressful environments and it is easy to get waylaid. Um, so I think, you know, um, just substituting like any, you know, feelings of doubt or, you know, questions in your mind with, with positive thinking is like really, I think very important. Um, that might be, you know, for some people, you know, meeting with somebody who you find very inspirational, even if they're not at your institution, you know, meeting with somebody like that, you know, listening to books, listening to podcasts like this, you know, podcast or others, you know, hearing, um, from the stories of others who have been successful. Um, you know, sometimes for some people it's religion, sometimes it's having a hobby, you know, something to kind of keep you feeling positive, I think is, is, is important. That's just been my personal experience and from talking to others. So. Yeah, I know that's, that's great advice. So um, we just a few minutes left uh, and I want to sort of end the, the podcast with your role, your upcoming role with Sky Fellows course. Uh, So tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe, you know, some of your closing remarks for the podcast and for our listenership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that one thing I, I have really enjoyed working with the professional societies. Um, I've worked with ACC, AHA, um, as well as Sky on various committees, and I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's for, you know, it's to have that professional, um, you know, collegial relationships and to be able to feel like you're contributed, con- contributing towards something that's really positive. So, but with Sky, a couple of years ago, I was on the um, live case planning committee. And then this year I was on the coronary track planning committee for the Sky Scientific Sessions. And um, I was invited to apply to be, um, you know, in the pipeline to manage the um, Sky Fellow Summit that happens at the Sky Scientific Sessions for the next few years. And um, honestly, this is like a labor of love. I feel like I, I, it's stuff that I really enjoy. And I think part of the reason I enjoy it is that I think it's really fun being able to connect the really great teachers with fellows and with, you know, learners, even, you know, myself as included. Um, like I usually try to pick the people that I want to learn from. Um, I think that there's some really, you know, outstanding teachers out there. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, I, I, I guess this is a leadership position, but that's not kind of how I see it. I kind of see it as, you know, an opportunity to connect, um, you know, learners with really fantastic teachers. And I, I it's something I'm looking forward to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, I think it's kind of comes along with this idea that, you know, I, I have my own goals. My, my goal was never to be like the, you know, um, chair of the Sky Fellows Committee that sort of came about in the process of me trying to achieve my, achieve my other goals. Um, but I think it's a good um, service to perform. Um, and, and like I said, I think it's um, something where I'm going to learn along the way too. So. 
That's that's excellent. So, no, I've had a great time um, having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for uh, spending uh, a late Monday evening with us uh, to record this episode. Um, any any closing remarks for Parallax for our listeners for you know fellows in training or early career cardiologists? Oh my goodness! I think my a couple things. Um, one is listen to the other episodes. Um, I'm actually really excited to listen to them myself and hear from some of the others and get advice from others. And the second thing is just to stay positive. Um, you know, whatever it is that inspires you or makes you feel fulfilled, um, you know, those are the things that you should really go after uh, because you know that's that's the spice of life is just, you know, um, feeling fulfilled by whatever you're doing. And, you know, ultimately if you have a, a goal and, you know, it's something that you aspire to achieve, then that's going to help, you know, help you through the tough times. So yeah, that, that's my advice. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great advice. Thank you. Thanks again, Nadia, for doing this for us. And just before ACC, what are you going to be at ACC? I will be there. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll see. I'll see. You. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, you know, share and um, others who are listening, if you want to drop in a comment to either Nadia or myself uh, for feedback, then do so on Twitter or you could, you could rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or Spotify. Thanks again. And we'll see you, see you shortly. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.